Kia ora and welcome to Green MPs in the Podcast, a weekly podcast interview series where we put your questions to the Green Party MPs and find out a bit more about what excites and inspires them. Thanks for joining us. I'm Green MP Gareth Hughes, and this week I'm with someone I'm very excited to be interviewing, James Shaw, Green Party co-leader. How's it going, James? How's summer? Really great. And this is the great thing about the Kiwi summer is that it's long and hot and dry, and you always forget what it's like in the depths of winter, and so it's always a pleasant surprise. Hey, well, James, you entered Parliament in 2014, and alongside being co-leader, you're the Green Party spokesperson for climate change, finance, and economic development. We normally start with a topical issue, but it's summer, and we've had a ton of questions on Twitter, so let's just skip that, eh, and talk about uh, some of those questions. Firstly, where's your favourite place to enjoy summer in New Zealand? So, my wife's grandmother had a batch, uh, well, a house on what used to be a farm in a place called Whangaparoa, which is north of Auckland. Uh, and it used to be a two-hour drive up a up a metal track, uh, and 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 now it's not. It's now it's just a suburb of Auckland, and it's about forty minutes from Auckland Airport. But this house is situated on a cliff, and it looks out uh, northwards across the bay uh, through at the islands, and it is just the most incredible magical spot that I've ever been in New Zealand. I've had quite a long relationship there. My uncle uh, lived there, and my dad was offered quite a big parcel of land for a tiny amount of money in the sixties. <laughs> I think never took it up. So, <laughs> well, I you know it wouldn't surprise me if it was this farm, right? Because it, it, it back in the day in the fifties when they when her grandparents moved there, it was a sheep farm, you know, and on a on a peninsula, uh, and it slowly got parcelled off into you know what is now you know a commuter suburb. Uh, but they never let go of the farmhouse. Oh, well. well, it sounds absolutely beautiful. I want, I want to start at the beginning, James, and you, you're seen as coming from a bit of a, a corporate background, but your upbringing, if anything, was kind of uh, unconventional, and we had a bit of a debate on Twitter around the comma for mums. Uh, <laughs> tell us about what it was like growing up. Yeah, so uh, when you say unconventional, so my, uh, my birth mother uh, was a, a unionist and a teacher, um, with pretty strong socialist values, and I think that's where I got my kind of political politicization really was from her. And I actually remember when I was about six or seven, her coming home uh, with a motorcycle helmet and thinking, "Well, what? You know, because she drove a car." Uh, and it was because she'd been out at the Springbok uh, oh, right. to protests, yep. wearing helmets and so on, in, in the in the um, uh, late seventies and early eighties. And, uh, and and so I inherited my values from her. Now, is it? Transpired when I was about ten or eleven, uh, she met a woman um, and became you know they, they entered into a relationship and so that's who I refer to as my two mums um, because essentially as a as a young teenager I've been raised by two women. And a wit on Twitter was asking which of your two mums or both of your mums buy your clothes. <laughs> yeah, now that particular wit. Was our co-leader the Terrier too, right? So I'm going to have words with her. Well, I've got another slightly different question, and it's a hypothetical one from Megapope. He's uh, given a bit of a scenario. You're playing the beloved 1990s Vampire (laughs) the Masquerade tabletop RPG. Uh, What do you pick? What clan do you pick? Well, and I said... I know nothing of what that means. Okay, so I said Brujar all the way, bro. Uh, Now... This is a very niche topic, so I am going to have to explain it. So there, there was a, I was a big into Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games, right? Um, but one of them was uh, this game called Twilight, uh, which was a, a sort of a role-playing game in which the the characters are all played by, uh, sorry, the, the players all play vampires. Um, so it's sort of a riff on Anne Rice's, uh, you know, interview with the vampire books, which were out at about the same time. 
And uh, the vampires come from 13 different clans. And the clans are kind of personality archetypes, if you like. So you have these different types of personalities. And the Bruja clan were sort of rebels, right? So they, they were kind of always chafing against the system. They were a little bit rock and roll. Um, they were probably into graffiti, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and so as an early teenager, or mid, late, sorry, mid to late teens when I was playing this role-playing game, Bruja seemed to be the one that kind of fitted me most because my personality type, I, was all, I hated being told what to do. I was always kind of chafing against authority and so on. And I guess that's, you know, it's funny when you ask that question, like, yeah, it's a flippant question about a role-playing game. But actually, you can kind of see some of my political uh, orientation coming through in that too. Have you uh, watched Parks and Rec? No. No. There's a character there. He's um, the boyfriend of Amy Powler, and um, you remind me of, of him. You, he gets really animated and excited about um, yeah. Dungeons and Dragons. It was a great. It was uh, yeah. Anyway, it was a big part of my life. My first job yeah. was at a, a, a shop that sold oh, that right? games and yep. Dungeons and Dragons. Would it speed jump through time a little bit more? Because you joined the Green Party in 1990, where you stood for election. Now, I think the Greens had only been in existence for six months before that election. How old were you when you stood for the Wellington Central, wasn't it? Well, no, uh, it wasn't. So, sorry. Was I, I, yeah, yeah, I stood for Wellington City Council in 1992. I joined in 1990, which was the first election where the Greens stood uh, in a general election as the Green Party. Obviously, previously before that, had been the Values Party. Uh, and so I'd gotten very heavily involved, and I was 17 years old when I, in 1992, when yep. I stood for Wellington City Council, and I turned 18 during the election campaign. What was, what was that like as a 17, 18-year-old? Oh, look, I had no idea what I was doing, um, and it was great fun, and there were people, you know, kind of Green Party legends like Sue Kedgley, um, uh, Celia Wade-Brown, you know, who all, all stood in that, in that campaign, some other people who, you know, we haven't kind of seen a lot of since. Um, I ran out in the Western Ward in Karori, where you live, uh, and spent, you know, an entire winter delivering tens of thousands of leaflets, soggy leaflets into yeah. people's letterboxes. Well, what was the big issue? <laughs> what were you talking <laughs> about? It hasn't changed, 90. man. Um, it, it, actually, I'll tell you what. The Basin Reserve flyover. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, it was it was what it was then was what is now Caro Drive. The big battle was what was then known as the bypass, and now everybody knows as Caro Drive. That was a battle that had been going on for bloody decades by then. Um, and uh, and yeah, and, and essentially that kind of east east west link. The other thing that we were arguing for was to save the old BNZ building. Uh, which of course is now is a fantastic shopping arcade so like we won that one at least and then the other thing uh, was light rail through the city yep. which we've basically fought every election on for 25 years well 25 years on yeah precisely. <laughs> we'll get there yeah. well if there was one thing you could take back from that moment in history for the green party in our early days yeah what would you like to bring back because I imagine we've changed, an awful, or we have changed an awful lot. Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, uh, in 1990, we had about 400 members around the entire country. And now there are over 400 members just in the Wellington Central branch alone. And what would I bring back? It was... It, it's really... When you're a small, very small party, it's very easy to be purist. And it's very easy for everyone to get along and to have similar ideas because there aren't that many of you that have diversity. Um, but there was a sort of a clarity uh, around our messaging and communications that's harder to maintain when you become more of a big tent party and you include more people. And I don't know how to do this, but I think if there was a way of, of having that level of clarity, but also still having you know the kind of increasing yep. size that we're now seeing. 
Okay, well, you then went on working as a business consultant, primarily in London from 98 to 2010. You worked at the chairman's office at PricewaterhouseCoopers, then Future Considerations, an organisational development consultancy you helped establish. What was that experience like, working in the the big smoke of London? Well, I mean, London is an amazing city. It, London's one of the most incredible places in the world, especially for someone in their 20s, you know, and it is a real young person city. One of the reasons I came home is that over the age of 30, you kind of get diminishing returns. Uh, but I, I, I mean, because I'd already had that experience with the Green Party and the environment was really important to me, the work that I was doing in the private sector was about trying to ensure uh, that businesses were going about their business in a more sustainable, you know, less harmful way. And uh, it was phenomenally useful experience, you know, which I uh, use a lot here in this work here in Parliament. And also the experience of working with a number of um, especially at the corporate end, some of these really big global corporations who have got more money than Cresus, realising that actually they felt constrained in what they could do in terms of becoming more sustainable because they didn't feel they were on a level playing field with their competitors. Right. Meaning that they weren't making some of those investments to become more sustainable. And I, I had this kind of realisation that, you know, if look, if the most cashed up, powerful organizations in the world are struggling with this then actually it just led me back to politics because I'm like well how do we make how do we make things easy for people how do we get how do we make being green easier than, than it is is there like a, a company or a business leader who you look up to as sort of an exemplar for other people yeah there was a guy called Ray Anderson uh, who's a bit of a legend in these circles who had a company I mean the company still exists Ray sadly died a few years ago of cancer uh, a company called Interface Carpets based in Atlanta, Georgia, which is the world's largest uh, manufacturer of petroleum nylon carpet tiles. And he had this huge realization about you know, the environment and sustainable business and went on a 20 year mission to make it the most sustainable industrial enterprise anywhere in the world and then to show the rest of the world how it's done. And he's been hugely successful and the, and the fact that you know, Interface have doubled in size in terms of revenue um, but at the same time, you know, their emissions are down like 78% or something like that. Their waste to landfill is down 98%. Um, uh, you know, their um, energy emissions are, you know, down, uh, sorry, their, their use of renewable energy has gone from 0% to a third of the total. All of this, all of this kind of stuff that they've been really successful. They've been so successful they have to set up their own speakers bureau because so many of their managers were getting pulled away to go and talk yeah. to other companies about how other companies could do it, that they weren't actually doing their job and running the company. So uh, Ray Anderson is, is a true hero for me. And what brought you back to New Zealand? Well, a number of things, one of which is the lifestyle. Uh, like I said, I, I was sort of in my mid-30s, and uh, London is an incredibly stressful place, and I, I just wanted to... I felt I was getting old sooner. Um, my parents were getting to retirement age and I wanted to be back here while they were still, yep. you know, before they got immobile and cranky. Um, and uh, I also wanted to run for Parliament and I'd made my mind up in 2005 that that's what I wanted to do. Um, you know, that experience of working with the, with the private sector had sort of said, okay, well, you know, actually you can affect more change through the world of politics. Well, I mean, re researching for this, I reread your maiden speech and one of, one of the stories in there that really jumped out for me again is uh, when you were in Lake Bimtal in the foothills of the Himalayas in yeah. Uttarakhand, India. It was a, a kind of a good example of what you're talking about, that 
mixing the political and the business world and you know something we face in Parliament as yeah. Greens is this sort of false argument that it's the economy or the environment. Yeah. Can you tell me our listeners a little bit more about that story? Well, so in that one, so my client there was uh, HSBC, which is one of the world's largest financial institutions, and we've been running a program, I ran a program with them for about six years, in which we took a group of their emerging leaders from all over the world in teams of about a dozen, and we took those teams to go and work on development projects uh, in places like India and Brazil and Indonesia and Mexico and, uh, and so on. And um, on this particular one, I was working with a team up in the foothills of the Himalayas with a village where climate change was starting to, well, two things were happening, one of which was climate change, and their main crop was a particular form of bamboo that they would harvest wild in the surrounding forest and the mountains. And the climate was changing the pattern of the bamboo, and so it was becoming a scarcer resource. But also, they were over-harvesting. Uh, and, and essentially, the whole area was an environmental protection area, so they were also harvesting illegally. Mm. But it was also their only source of income. And these are people who are living on, you know, n- not just less than a dollar a day, but some of them less than a dollar a week. So you're talking, you know, tiny, tiny amounts of money. And so we were working with a local NGO who had been working with them uh, to try and you know work out what are some ways to kind of boost the incomes and at the same time try and solve this environmental problem and discovered during the course of the project that not terribly far away was a an agricultural research horticultural research uh, institute which happened to have a whole lot of bamboo um, seedlings and so what we did is we ended up sort of brokering a relationship whereby people would go and at a brokering relationship between the Forest Park Rangers, who are supposed to be keeping people out, that local research institute and this village, um, where the villagers would actually take bamboo seedlings into the forest from the research institute and be allowed to harvest mature plants as long as they were plant, replanting two uh, you know, seedlings for every, uh, for every plant that they were taking out. And, and, and so it was an extraordinary thing, right, because we didn't speak each other's languages, we were, you know, working through translators the whole time. And the cultural gulf between, you know, um, kind of destitute villages on a mountainside in northern India and this group of bankers from all over the world was absolutely colossal. But that's the point of the program, right? And what we were trying to the, the main recipients with the villages, it was the bankers. As the bankers were sort of realizing what kind of a world they were living in and operating in. And the implications of the way that they were going about their business, you know, for the communities that were operating in. And HSBC is a big operator in, in India, but these people live in the kind of, you know, quite cloistered middle class, high income areas in Mumbai, and don't really connect um, with where the majority of people are at. So it's a it's a phenomenal kind of experience uh, for them, one which is profoundly affecting. And it means that you've got a group of people who are coming up through the ranks inside those organisations who actually do understand some of the big global context around massive inequality, poverty, climate change, water use and so on. And it does start to affect the way that the bank operates. And I guess that's the lesson for, for politics in New Zealand. We can have those win-win-win solutions. You know, we can bring all those different dimensions from climate to economy to agriculture conservation. And find those solutions. They can, and I, I mean, I have to say, I think my main frustration in politics 
is that there's actually less diversity in Parliament than I was dealing with between these bankers and these villages, and yet we were having a more constructive conversation up in the foothills, speaking through translators, <laughs> than we do here between basically, you know, mostly a bunch of whiteies um, in, in Parliament who come from not entirely dissimilar backgrounds. And I, I, I think reform of Parliament and how we manage our processes to be more constructive and more collaborative has got to be a high priority totally agree and I think that would be a great sort of transformational change for the country to set us in the right direction I don't know if it was a mistake but I posted an invitation to Twitter for questions and boy we got a few and thank you very much for for posting all the questions I won't be able to ask all of them but let's start with a good one which is firstly Mr Shaw your campaign seems to have the momentum (laughs) of a runaway freight train why are you so popular well that's a nice Simpsons quote uh, from Megapope. Now, I'm not practicing my Patsy questions yeah, sure. uh, for 2017, so let's go to the next one. And Claire Amos asked a good one. What's your vision for a New Zealand that's going to thrive when exponential technology change is going to help change how we live, learn, and work? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, Claire's a, um, a brilliant mind as well. And uh, she and I were at the Singularity U conference down in Christchurch oh, so a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was quite amazing. Uh, where you know speaker after speaker was just talking about the enormous disruption that's facing us uh, today. So I think uh, just to go back a step, I guess my sense for the for this particular country, for New Zealand, is that the the idea of a hundred percent pure New Zealand that that brand shouldn't just be a marketing slogan which we don't live up to, but actually should be a statement of our values and who we who we are as a country and what we stand for. And that we then organise our economy and everything around that principle because actually that's what people look to us for in the rest of the world. That's where the value is. But it's not just that's where the economic value is. It's actually that's what we want. It's just, you know, who, who we are. And so I guess there's a, a, a growing sense of disappointment around New Zealand that we're not living up to that promise or that it isn't the country that people grew up with thinking it was. Well, what is the national narrative under national? Do we have a national value statement? Well, that's a really good question. I don't think that we do. And, and I think, that, I mean, it's pretty obvious that over the course of the last 30 years, our values as a country have shifted. But I don't think it's become, I don't think there's any more clarity than there was 30 years ago. It's like the, the, the sense of who we were 30 years ago was reasonably clear, and now it's, it's less clear. But at the same time, I think young people have got a better idea, a sense of national identity than they did 30 years ago when I was growing up. But that, that notion of, well, what do we stand for? What are the fundamental values? Is is kind of a fair go still one of our... Uh, I suspect that was part of the reaction to the flag referendum, is that many people wanted to change the flag, but they wanted to have meaning behind it. Yes. You know, it wasn't just yes. seeing the flag on the yeah. world stage, it yeah. was what the flag stood for yeah. with New Zealand values. But to go back to Claire's question, before the podcast, we were both talking about reading The Rise of the Robots um, yeah. over the summer break. Are you pessimistic, optimistic about the state of technology? Oh, oh, oh look, I'm, I'm actually wildly optimistic about, this, about technology and, and where it's going. And I, and I think that many of the great challenges that we're facing today will be at the very least hugely mitigated by uh, you know some of these incredible technologies that are coming through but it is incredibly disruptive and, and that's what Claire's question is, is about that the logical conclusion of where automation and artificial intelligence are going the logical conclusion of all of that is the end of the employment-based economy uh, and there was a guy another economist Jeremy Rifkin who uh, about 20 years ago wrote a book called the end of work 
And he said, actually, back in the 60s and the 70s, when the first big round of automation really swept through and started the whole kind of globalization uh, movement, people sort of started saying, well, this is, you know, we're going to have this huge rise in leisure time. And then actually the precise opposite happened is that we all ended up working harder. And that is because, not because uh, there wasn't more leisure time, but because we hadn't got the economics right, that at a time of increasing productivity based on automation, uh, actually that means that humans, human input, human labor, isn't as important as part of the productivity equation as it used to be. But the problem is, what that means is, everybody's got to work harder to try and maintain the same income. Uh, and so it's not a technological question, it's that we haven't set up the economy to be able to enjoy the leisure time that all of these neat toys that we've created enable us to, to do. And that is still something that, as a country and as a world, we're just totally not facing. Uh, and, and so I, I think that's actually one of the greatest challenges for the next 10 to 20 years, is to say, as in, there's this increasing you know, waves of disruption coming through, how do we organise our economy so that people's livelihoods and, uh, and incomes are taken care of? And I know it's something you've been putting a lot of thought to, and you know, a shout out to Labour, who have put a lot of thought into it as well. I guess this could be a really positive role for New Zealand, much like we were the social laboratory under Richard Sen in the 1890s, mm-hmm. advancing you know, sort of progressive values and doing things first. Maybe this is a role for us. Uh, I've got another question It's a bit different. This one's from Justin Fung. Donald Trump, president-elect, becomes the first uh, president to call a New Zealand Green Party leader in history. What do you say to him? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if you, I don't know, well, if, if you had a few issues, what would be on your talking points to... To President Trump? I, look, top of the list would have to be climate change. I mean, the, the United States is one of the most important countries in the world in terms of its own emissions, but also in terms of the influence it has on other countries. And the Paris Agreement uh, back in 2015 was only gotten over the line because of the leadership shown by the United States and China working together. Yeah. Uh, and so the idea that the United States is now you know, kind of walking backwards on that commitment it is incredibly dangerous for the, for the world. So that would have to be the top of my agenda. Well, I guess it's probably unlikely uh, he's going to call, but I guess you'll keep the phone there just in case. I kind of asked that question because Zach McLean asked an interesting one, which follows up. Do you think the same factors that elected Trump could exist in New Zealand? Could another popular demagogue arise to power here? Yes, I do. And it's one of the things that I'm most fearful about this year in an election year. I think that the conditions aren't as extreme as they are in the United States or as far progressed as they are in the United States or in Britain with the Brexit vote. But those conditions do exist here. You know, you've got a, a group of people who have really been excluded from the economic gains of the last 30 years. We, we, you've seen a huge rise in inequality since the early 1990s, which has plateaued, but even though it's plateaued, it's entrenched. So, uh, you know, economic mobility has, has really kind of started to die out. And, you, and you're getting a, a kind of a landed gentry class in New Zealand through the you know, housing crisis. And so as, as those kinds of conditions really continue to bite, you know, you're seeing pensioners and people on low incomes, their incomes have actually gone backwards over the course of the last eight years because of the rise of living costs against the, the very low rises in their, in their incomes. And so I do think that there is a real risk that there will be a, uh, you know, a, a backlash here and that populist politicians could take advantage of that. 
Well, here's a different one from a group who does amazing work down in Dunedin, Blue Skin Power. Mm. They ask, can community energy speed the transition to a low-carbon economy? Well, I think it's one of the, the few things that can and should. So I, I actually, I, know, I mean, I know the guys from Blue Skin uh, because I, before I got into Parliament, I was working with an organisation called the Arkina Foundation, which is a social enterprise incubator. Uh, and, and I was working quite closely with Blueskin. And, you know, like you, Gareth, um, I absolutely think one of the first priorities for a green government has got to be the creation of a distributed grid where people are able to both buy and sell, produce and use uh, their own uh, electricity. And that if you green the grid, that then enables, you know, so much uh, other greening of the economy uh, from that point. It's also economically you know, it, it t- totally changes household economics or, or community economics because the way that we do uh, electricity generation at the moment is kind of like an extractive industry. You set up a big plant somewhere in the regions. It uses some kind of natural resource, you know, for example, hydro or wind. Um, the electricity itself is then exported over very long uh, distances to where it gets used. But so does the revenue. Very little of that revenue actually stays in the, in the local community, whereas community-owned wind, the idea that people actually own their own energy generation assets means that the local economy is stimulated because that money stays locally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, one more question before we move on to uh, your favourite song, which I'm really excited to hear about. It's uh, from John Pallenthorpe, and he asks, with an outer ring of expensive new builds surrounding Auckland, where do the low-income families go as all those neighbourhoods sort of gentrify and become absolutely unaffordable? Yeah, look, I mean, John's completely right. And having lived in London, you could see this happening there as well to the point where... Actually, so there were what they called key workers, you know, nurses and, and um, you know, teachers and uh, fire um, fighters and so on, who actually couldn't live in London. And London's a big city, and you kind of need a lot of nurses yeah. and firefighters and, and so on. But... Even not only them, uh, but I, I had a friend who was working at Deloitte, one of the big consultancies, and they got surveyed about their housing arrangements, and Deloitte, this management consulting firm, was horrified to find out that their own consultants, their junior consultants, were living two and three people to a bedroom because they couldn't afford housing, and Deloitte ended up building its own apartment right? wow. for its own staffers which harks back to you know, Port Sunlight and Bourneville and all of those kind of 19th century models where you, know, you kind of had uh, businesses that were setting up housing schemes for their own workers. And I think, I mean, it would be horrifying to think that New Zealand would end up in, that, in a similar kind of uh, situation. But the most important thing is, is, as a country is that we have got to build houses. You know, we just absolutely have to. And one of my great frustrations of this government is that they've got this you know, housing accommodation supplement billions of dollars which is going into uh, you know being exported from the public sector and in, into the into the private sector into into the pockets of investors at a time of massively high prices so we're not getting value for money it would be it would make so much more sense if we owned that housing stock well to, to change uh, gears for a moment riverboat captain great name asks what was the first record you bought the first record it was a cassette tape this being 1984, uh, was The Cars, actually. Yeah. Yeah, so there was that, what was that um, hit, um, no, no One's Gonna Drive You Home Tonight? It was a very sad oh, right. song, yeah. Um, but a great, you know, kind of classic number one, 1980s. And, yeah. Well, mine was super groove. It was a, a, oh. <laughs> a, a single when you could buy yeah. a single. Yeah, oh my God. I don't think I ever had a single. 
I got to so that so Drive by the Cars was the first that I ever bought, but the first one I ever had was actually Tom Waits Rain Dogs, yeah, uh, which my mother bought me when she bought me my first cassette player. Wow, so what's the song you're going to pick? This is the thing I've loved the most about asking all of our caulkers. We've had Beethoven to OK uh, to Radiohead. What's your favourite song and what were you doing at that time of your life? It was Putting Out Fire with Gasoline by David Bowie. Uh, and this is from a movie, The Cat People. It was the, uh, the intro music for The Cat People. And it is a phenomenal piece of music. So, you know, turn it up loud. Um, I think it was about 1983, 84, something like that. Uh, and it, I, at the time, I thought the movie was amazing, but like, what the heck was I? I don't know, I was 11. Um, but I remember that track always, and it's always stuck with me. And I've been putting on fire. So looking at politics, parliaments and your portfolios, what do you reckon is the most surprising thing you hadn't considered but you've learnt since you entered parliament? Oh, uh, that's a really good question. The most surprising thing, I think. Uh, it's funny because as an outside observer, before I got in, I think I had a suspicion of this, but it has really been demonstrated just how true it is, which is that the partisan nature of parliament just destroys good ideas uh, so you know national can't vote for our ideas because we're in the opposition we can't vote for their ideas because they're the evil rotten government um, even when there may be some common ground um, and the fact that things move so quickly mean that you actually have very little time to consider a law or a piece of legislation and you have to sort of make a snap decision based on very little information about something can I tell you a story about this? Yeah, Just go a, ahead. a really recent one, right? So Jamie Lee Ross, uh, who is a National Party uh, deputy whip, has had a members' bill uh, drawn from the ballot which would ban uh, washing car windows at intersections, right? So it's an incredibly minor bill. Um, but if you're a government backbencher, you're only allowed to have minor bills as a, as a thing. But anyway, I thought, oh, this is just your classic kind of stuffing in the in the ballot to make yep. sure that no opposition bills get up and I was having him on about it and I said look why are you bothering with this like it's a really minor issue and you know councils already have these powers to to stop this and he said no they don't um he said they exist on the statute book but they can't enforce them and he'd actually been approached by his local police force to say you know look there is a problem here you know there's a kind of we're worried about a rising gang activity some of these things are you know they're using children and blah blah blah, blah. we need to be able to enforce it and I hadn't considered that because I'd sort of given it a cursory probably yep. to be honest with you less than five minutes attention so I looked at it made a snap judgment and thought okay that's a silly idea and I just thought all it took was one corridor conversation with him to get a whole different perspective on this now I don't know if I would go back you know if, I need to kind of go back and take another look and, and reconsider it. But it did make me think how often we do that, you know, with basically every piece of legislation that comes through, we have so little time to really to really get below it. And I know that, I mean, I'm not just saying that for myself, but right across the house. Uh, and when I debate, you know, 
with um, government MPs, hearing some of their opinions about some of our, our ideas, thinking, God, they're so misinformed. And then thinking, well, what's something I could do to try and break through that? Uh, so that that kind of dysfunction, I think, it's not good for the country, and it does mean that there's a lot of inefficiency here. I thought that's a really good answer, and I think it's an absolute tragedy of MMP. We took this bold step into reimagining our politics and our democracy, and we sort of fell back into first-past-the-post mindsets. Yeah. Uh, you know, we all try with the cross-party groups to foster that, but I think that's what people wanted is... Politicians working together. Yeah, that's right. I, I think so. We've in, we've we've kept over a lot of the old kind of Westminster institution and behaviour in, in the MMP environment. And I think I said this before. I, I think reform of the institution has got to be a very high priority for us. So you've got a, a national profile, James, as co-leader of the Greens, but some ginormous portfolios with climate change, finance, economic development. What's your vision for the country? What's on your stool that you'll be setting out this year? Well. I'll give you a shorthand for it. So I was talking before about Ray Anderson, whose vision for his company was that Interface would be the world's first fully sustainable industrial enterprise anywhere in the world and to show the rest of the world how it's done. My vision for New Zealand is that New Zealand can be the world's first fully sustainable economy anywhere in the world and to show the rest of the world how it's done and to make our way as a result of that. So I'll give you an example. If we figure out how to make more money in farming putting less uh, or zero emissions into the atmosphere, that doesn't just help to bring down our domestic greenhouse gas emissions. There's also, that's incredible IP, because it turns out there are other countries with cows, uh, and they are going to be just as interested as we are in trying to work out how how can you have environmentally friendly, low emission farming, and still feed the world, and make money out of it. And that's, that's the basic conundrum. It's not a scientific or a technological question, it's an economic question. So what would we see as, say, James Shaw, Minister of Economic Development or James Shaw, Minister of Climate Change, after a term in government? The reason that I'm interested in economic development is because that is where you can affect the solutions to climate change. Because, you know, you can kind of go, okay, so it's, it's an environmental problem, but all of the solutions are actually economic development questions. How do you develop your economy in such a way that drives... Um, emissions down but also adds real value. So in your own portfolio uh, of energy, how do you organise the energy system in a way that's uh, you know, kind of exciting and, and bold and, and visionary and, and people get what they want out of it but also that really brings down um, our emissions. And I think frankly New Zealand is on the, on the edge of the greatest economic opportunity we've had in at least one generation, possibly more. Uh, and if you, the, the comparable period of time I think is World War II when the Western economies basically just forced their economies to shift into a war mentality. Uh, and actually, that they, they did. Like they re-geared and retooled and, and, and so on. And I think that we've got to have the equivalent of a war economy, but to think of it as, a, as an investment, right, rather than as just a pure sunk cost. But that set up a period known as the Great Prosperity post-war with you know, massive increases of productivity. Whereas all across the Western world, we've actually seen a decline in absolute productivity improvements and slide uptick in the 90s because of tech, but that's really trailed off. So, yeah, absolutely agree. We've only got a little bit more time left, so I want to try and get through some of these listener questions. Now, John Pauly mustn't have had much to do this night because he was on Twitter firing through a, a series. But let's go through them rapid fire. Twin Peaks or Northern Exposure? Twin Peaks. Cheese and onion or salt and vinegar? Salt and vinegar. 
Empire or Rebel? I guess that's a Star Wars question. <laughs> Definitely Rebel. Timberlake or Bieber? Timberlake. He's <laughs> oh. a better actor. Oh, is it? Neither. <laughs> Springbok Tour? I was against it. Against it? Well, at least you remember. I was pretty young. Yeah. I remember it, yeah, but I was pretty young. And have you taken the driving test yet? No, I have not taken the driving <laughs> test yet. So that last one, you're quite well known for, for not driving. Me, on the other hand, I was a boy racer who used to change car Maybe. engines. But Maybe you could give me some lessons. Oh, gosh. In modern cars, <laughs> I couldn't do it. Have, have you got a car? Uh, well, the funny thing is, so um, when I married my wife, she had a car. I obviously didn't have one because I couldn't drive, so there was no point having one. I mean, her, her car, which she'd owned for about 20 years, fell to bits. And so we bought a car. Uh, and so, uh, yes, I now own a car. Welcome to the club, James. Yeah, and I, I've yet to learn how to drive it, though. <laughs> if you need burnout advice, I'm your man. So Isaac Freeman asks, how do you manage the challenge of speaking as a co-leader for a member-run party? Because we, we are the most democratic party in Parliament. Yes, we are. And uh, so one of the things about uh, about that is that you know our, our membership really decides what the policy parameters are and then um, the team here at Parliament uh, essentially comes up with proposals that are bound in time and you know um, you know we do the finances to try and interpret that policy and, and give it some life I have to say in, in many ways I don't actually find it that challenging because uh, it means that you don't is that is that a lot of those big decisions you've actually got very clear direction on so you kind of know you know you know where you stand on uh, on most things because the membership have actually talked it through i mean one of the things i see in some of the other parties particularly the bigger ones is that when their mps take on new portfolios that the the policy then changes uh, and that is often very confusing for their members and supporters so it's not i don't think it's a huge challenge um I think the main challenge is uh, kind of trying to remember what the positions are and everything. And as a co-leader, you end up talking a lot about a lot of Will you stuff. be questioned with no warning on any topic under the sun? Yeah, that, that, that's the greatest challenge. Uh, and there have been a few media stand-ups that I've been in where um, some people, Lloyd Bird, will just ask the most random questions and you're not prepped for it. And you haven't necessarily done your reading in that particular department. So you've kind of got to go with your gut. I guess on the flip side too, I mean, I'm a real strong believer in the academic literature backs it up, the wisdom of crowds. And what we've got is the wisdom of thousands and thousands of people coming together, which is pretty cool. And the last listener question, this one's from John. Uh, How about a snow train from Auckland and Wellington to Mount Ruapehu? I know you've been running the the winter snow campaign. Uh, What do you reckon about this suggestion? Look, I am all for it. And I actually, last year, tried to organise one. But it turns out that getting a two-car train from Wellington to Ohakuni will set you back $14,000. You literally have to sell every seat on the train for $400 a pop, uh, $200 each way. Um, So it's no surprise that everybody drives. Um, And, you know, I compare that to uh, Europe. When we used to go skiing in Europe, everybody caught the train. Uh, to get there, right? Um, it just made way more sense than anything else. And I, I mean, I just think, that, you know, there's something clearly wrong where an incredibly efficient form of transport, i.e. a train, ends up being three or four or five times more expensive per passenger uh, than a less efficient form of transport. It reminds me of when I was a transport spokesperson a few terms ago, and, you know, there's no train between Hamilton and Auckland that's a regular commuter train. Yeah. Yet they had 
carriages and the old Silverfern uh, rail units on sitting there rusting. Yeah. You had Fonterra saying they'd put 200 people a day on it. Mm-hmm. You saw the council support it, but for want of a couple of hundred thousand bucks, yeah. it didn't get off the ground. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting angry. So <laughs> let's get into 10 questions, which is a series of rapid fire questions. So where do you live, James? Aro Valley, Green Party Ground Zero. Awesome. What, do you have a pet? No. No? No MP has a pet, really. It's quite, it's well, been it's, quite it's interesting. The problem with uh, being an MP, as you well know, Gareth, is that you end up spending a lot of time travelling, and I'm just worried that my pet would starve to death. Favourite recipe to cook? Uh, it would have to be um, bacon and mushroom pasta. Name of your private member's bill? Uh, it's the sustainability. Sorry, it's the Public Finance Act Sustainability Indicators Amendment Bill, uh, and what that would do uh, is change the Public Finance Act so that the Minister of Finance has to report on sustainable development indicators alongside financial indicators. It's an awesome bill, and congrats for having it pulled, and that'll be up for a vote this year, most probably. What's the worst job you've ever done? Uh, I was a shoe salesman. Reminds <laughs> <laughs> me of Al from Married with Children. Yeah. Who's an MP in another party you respect the most? Well, uh, to tell you the truth, there's a Todd Muller uh, in the National Party. Um, he's uh, conservative, but I have found him one of the most uh, open-minded uh, MPs on the on on our you know the, over the aisle from us, and that you can actually have a conversation with him, talk him through something, and he will give you the time and you know it can be persuaded by evidence so i and 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 he's a thoroughly decent human being as well like he's a really nice guy um and i that kind of gives me some hope for the future you know in terms of our ability to um you know try and build cross-party consensus on some of the really big things like climate change um if there are more people like him i'm just glad you didn't pick david parker who's been the clear sort of consensus winner amongst many green mps well i mean it's funny i have i have a huge amount of time for david parker i i mean i, I think he's an extraordinary brain one of if not the smartest person in, in parliament and i sat next to him in a local government environment select committee for about six months and he's a pleasure to watch favorite movie Oh, Blade Runner. <laughs> Absolutely. Director's cut. And what did you study at university? Well, huh, a bit of an overstatement to say I studied anything at university, really. Um, I, I, I did a, uh, a Bachelor of Arts in World Religions and International Political Economy at Victoria University. Um, and then when I was in the UK, I did a Master's uh, of Master of Science in Sustainable Development and Business Leadership. I didn't realise we had that in common. My degree was in Religious Studies, so... There are a surprising number of MPs with religious studies backgrounds. Okay, so what's your, what book are you reading at the moment? Twitter. <laughs> 140 character chapters. Yeah, no, I've got, a, I've got a bit of a reading list for the summer, which I'm struggling to get my way through. Oh, well, good luck. And the last question, and my favourite, what's in your bag that you take with you everywhere you go for work when you're travelling up and down the country? <laughs> I have a, a huge number of iPhone charge cables. <laughs> uh, I now have got to the point where I literally just leave one in every bag uh, so, so that they're always there. What do I, what do I carry? That's a, it's an interesting one. Uh, it's unusual. I think that's it. See books I, I, you're not I reading? Travel, I, no, I tra- this, this is the thing. I travel light. Yep. And, and actually, when it comes to reading, I mostly read off my phone. So, you know, books and magazines uh, and, and Netflix... 
um, all of that's on the phone these days. So I actually, you know, if I'm traveling, if I'm doing an overnight trip, pretty much the only thing I carry is a spare pair of underwear and a toothbrush. <laughs> very cool. Hey, well, it's been um, awesome to have your time. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the summer. Now, the last segment of the podcast is your 30-second elevator pitch, so 30 seconds on anything you want. Well, look, I've, I've been reflecting over the summer on something that Martin Luther King said uh, 50 years ago, um, which is that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And last year, uh, we saw the election of Donald Trump, um, and uh, there were a number of kind of grim moments, if you like, during the year with Brexit and so on. And it made me think that actually, you know, while history may bend towards justice, it only does so uh, when people actually stand for justice and then make history bend in that direction. Otherwise, it doesn't just naturally do that. It doesn't, you know, history doesn't take care of itself. Uh, And this year being an election year, I think uh, that those of us who have progressive values really need to clearly state those values and to say that actually we do stand for justice and we will make the arc of the universe bend in that, the arc of history bend, bend in that direction because otherwise I think you can get complacent thinking that history will simply take care of itself and actually, you know, we've got to stand up for the things that we believe in because they are reversible uh, and things could go backwards. Well, that's a great clarion call for the year. Thank you very much, James. Kia ora. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks very much for listening to Green MPs in a Podcast. Follow the Green MPs on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Snapchat. This podcast was recorded and shared with resources from Parliamentary Services. Please share it and rate it on iTunes or your favourite podcast website so more people can find it. Thank you for listening.